Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And for your presenters today, you have myself, Jacob, and then we're going to have Ari. Will um, Ari will be my co-presenter today, um, but they are just arriving a bit late in the studio, but they should be here in a number of minutes. Now, I guess the first thing I'd like to start off um, for our program is I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today and Green Left Radio is being broadcast to you from the one land of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Okay, so for our program today, um, we have a number of um, interviews kind of planned. Um, we're going to be hopefully speaking to Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton, who's also had an experience of being a long-time sort of refugee rights activist. So we're going to be having a, a bit of a discussion about, you know, following the kind of developments of the New Zealand kind of deal. We sort of want to have a bit of a kind of reflective discussion on the history of Australia's kind of abhorrent sort of refugee policy. And I guess the question is, how did we get, kind of get here? And then I guess in terms of um, headline kind of news stories, probably one of the, the major things that has dominated the kind of news headlines in, in the past week has been the question, has been um, the unveiling of the federal budget. Um, so the Morrison government uh, has uh, made a recent, made basically revealed the kind of 2022 to 2023 um, budget on March 29th, um, which includes, uh, I guess, a number of kind of measures, etc. Basically, includes all the kind of economic measures that the the government is going to be kind of implementing over the next year. Now, we have obviously, as as socialists um, and at Green Left, we obviously we have probably quite a bit to kind of say uh, about the budget, um, but we'll probably get into a kind of a get, bit of a discussion on that um, later. But yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Hi, I'm Jacob from the Friday Rave, and I'm also on FreeCR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and, in doing so, remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with working bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. 
Now you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 94198377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or what's, whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and now we have myself, Jacob, and Ari, all in the studio. So, yeah. Okay, so um, I um, so Ari, I was I in terms of what we've done in the um, whatever I've, we've spoken about in the program so far, just announce what we've kind of have coming up in terms mm. of discussions, and I guess probably one of the big things that we're going to be discussing throughout uh, this program is uh, the recent federal budget that has been um, revealed by the Morrison kind of government. But I guess oh. one sort of news story, I guess I want to sort of bring kind of attention to. Um, and this kind of does relate a bit to the budget, um, although not, kind of not completely, unless, Ari, you had some thoughts that you had wanted to add. Well, I think we all uh, need to discuss the big news this week, which was uh, Will Smith slaving uh, Chris Rock, was it, at the Oscars? <laughs> oh, yeah, I kind of forgot about that news. I mean, you, it would have been almost um, impossible to not notice because it's been in... In the media, like twenty four seven. It's been um, the only thing fact, on Reddit. For in fact, a week. the invasion of Ukraine doesn't actually matter anymore because now we actually have to focus on the mean, uh, on the lives of a rich kind of of a rich celebrities yeah. to kind of distract us. Um, yeah, that I think is the most important thing that's happened this week. I hadn't even heard about the federal budget. Uh, you know, there was this whole thing on TV about somebody getting slapped, mm. and I completely remember his name and everything. <laughs> I definitely remember which Chris this is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think, yeah, what that what you sort of bring up there, Ari, it kind of reflects a, a number of funny things about the, mm. the political kind of system we live under, which is basically, I mean, you know, the nature, I guess, of Hollywood and the Oscars is, in a sense, it is a very colonial it's a it's an institution mm. that is basically that of the establishment, and so because they have this sort of thing about you know you know everyone gets along or there's all this formality <laughs> you know go, mm. we're all good people I mean despite the fact that you know um, the Oscars has you know and the Hollywood has regularly kind of upheld 
kind of like abusers and people who have committed worse crimes than yeah. probably what Will Smith <laughs> uh, has done, uh, apparently. And I think there's also like there's also like an element by which you know because. Um, it creates this almost this sort of distraction where, you know, ordinary people like Sellers, who have big, probably will have no connection to any of these celebrities because these celebrities are so above, yeah. separate from society. I hadn't even heard about the Oscars until I heard about somebody getting slapped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's like, yeah, it basically kind of, immer- we're kind of mm. taken in through these sort of different sort of, co- or, or, of this sort of culture war of which yeah. we apparently have to have a position in. And in fact, actually, what's sort of interesting has been that in terms of the response uh, to this, it hasn't necessarily fallen into a neat left-to-right divide. No. Um, in fact, there's sort of like, even interesting enough, uh, Morrison has sort of came out in support of <laughs> Will Smith <laughs> for some bizarre reason. Yeah, um, well, it's funny. That's my main, that's my main takeaway, is yeah. that it's funny. It's a bunch of extremely rich people dressed in extremely rich clothing acting like children. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, I mean, I guess the last kind of comment I guess I'll I'll sort of say is, I mean, I think the problem with the the kind of emphasis on the the slap um, is, I think it does kind of distract. I mean, for better or worse, you know, you could you can have a mm. debate about whether you know Will Smith was right to do that, but it's still like the joke that Chris Rock made was was in completely kind of bad taste. And then if you take in the context of the fact that it's a live audience. Uh, you know, a big stage, you know, the fact, you know, making a sort of comment about, you know, uh, uh, you know, a genuine kind of condition that people, um, people have. Um, yeah. And yeah, it is, it's, and especially in, in the context of the stigmatizing, um, reality, you know, that people have to live with, with this. So I think there's, mm. yeah, I think that the fact that the discussion has gone, shifted completely kind of away <laughs> from that, I think is, yeah. you know, obviously, okay. But of course, for better or worse, I think that, Really, um, the, probably the most important news has been actually the federal budget because really the federal budget is impacts quite profoundly, I guess, on our lives. Mm. Whereas whatever happens here, it has no impact <laughs> on the lives of ordinary working class people. It's just simply theatre uh, yeah. for us to sort of partake in and, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It serves as a great distraction from things that are going on, as always, which I think we'll come back to the issues of uh, distraction later. But mm. I guess you have to actually talk about the federal budget. Yeah. Well, I was going to sort of, I wanted to sort of start a bit of a discussion about, a bit more about this kind of headline kind of news story. Um, mm. And this is more just an important kind of thing. And this was reported actually in the Australian Institute, which um, has actually quite a lot of good analysis um, on, on the federal kind of budget. But this is... This doesn't. This sort of pertains to the budget, but not completely. But basically, one of the, one um, this uh, Australian Institute kind of media release found that fossil fuel subsidies cost um, have costed Australians a staggering 11.6 billion in 2021 to 2022, an increase mm. of 1.3 billion in the last year, according to new Australian Institute research. Yeah. And I guess what this, I mean, when you take into account, um, some some of the key findings in this was fossil fuel subsidies cost $11.16 billion in 2021 to 2022 across all federal, state and territory governments, which was equivalent to $22.139 per minute. And of course, this actually marked a 1.3 billion increase on the 2022 to 2021 um, total of um, to 10.3 billion. Mm. State and territories have actually reduced their 
uh, subsidies by 214 million. And now this is a bit of a kind of interesting trend because basically there has been a dynamic where particular hmm. state governments like, like South Australia and Victoria, now this is not trying to say that they're, what they're doing is necessarily like great climate policy, but they have, to their credit, you know, they have put a bit more kind of investment yeah. in renewable energy and put, you know, state funds into that. So what, <laughs> what, what this finding kind of reveals to me is that as soon as state governments, uh, if state governments are attempting to move away from fossil fuels, hmm. the federal government and the coalition is like, oh no, well, <laughs> we, we have to make, we have yeah. to, we have to increase the share of, of the subsidies. Yeah, and um, uh, Socialist Alliance candidate in uh, Leichhardt in um, Queensland, was it? Or Northern Territory, sorry. Um, she made a great post, which is, it's a very basic thing, right? That uh, this has, I think, should really strike people, is that how about instead of spending that, we spend that, like on, sorry, instead of spending that amount of money on fossil fuel subsidies or corporate welfare, essentially, how about we spend that on people right like the coalition loves to make loves to try and make this point that are oh, various welfare policies are too expensive but they're the sort they're the people who support this sort of corporate welfare they're the people who support you know all the they're the people who are doing all the rorts they're the people who support uh negative gearing and dividend imputation and that sort of thing that does cost the australian federal government and thus the taxpayer billions and billions a year in just giving rich people free money like just giving it to them no strings attached whatever they can do what they want with it when you know i'm on centrelink the amount went back down i'm on job seeker and the amount went back down after covid there's all these uh restrictions you know like somebody my job agency failed to connect on a phone call or something and immediately halted my payments i mean it got fixed right but like there are all these restrictions on what poor people can do with welfare but when it comes to this corporate and rich people welfare they can do whatever they want including getting paid like over 11 billion dollars over the course of two years to essentially ruin the planet and make it eventually unlivable for the rest of us it's this Oh, it's the kind of, I know hypocrisy is kind of pointless to talk about when it's, you're talking mm. about conservatives or the coalition or whatever, but when they claim there's not enough money for welfare, it's because they're wasting all their money on this sort of stuff. Mm. Well, I think, um, that gets into, I guess, another kind of important point, um, which I think we'll make, uh, I'll make before, um, we begin our first interview for the program. And that is like one of the kind of things that has kind of characterized this discussion around the federal budget has been this kind of talk of budget repair. Mm. Now, one of the kind of things <laughs> they keep going, they keep going on about this whole kind of issue, I guess, of public debt. Now, yeah. in actual reality, I mean, the federal government does actually have the ability to just print money. Um, the debt is, in fact, quite meaningless. Yeah. Um, especially, and in fact, really, in terms of kind of economic management, really the main the main kind of things really the worry about in terms of, like, is the core questions around inflation and, and, and so on. Mm. Now, but it's like, but of course they go on about how we need to, we need to com uh, get some budget repair while simultaneously saying that Australia is leading the way in its economic recovery. Like that's got almost like a bit of a kind of contradiction yeah, there because yeah. on one hand they're saying that Australia is having this amazing economic recovery, um, which actually, in fact, Australia probably actually had one of the best economic recoveries because actually in the past in response to COVID, it actually 
attempted to intervene in the economy and actually give people yeah, yeah. meaningful some level of meaningful income to cover their lost wages. Yeah. Um, so they, they, you have that sort of contradiction there, but then on the same time, they're simultaneously talking about budget repair. Now, what that kind of means really is um, the government actually just wants to, um, because they're their economic management just wants they just want to give more money essentially more money for the rich and then they want yeah. and they want to make cuts to social services and welfare to pay for the subsidies they're already be giving to the rich yeah exactly and countless studies have found that this sort of austerity stuff where it is you know cutting welfare and then giving ever more corporate welfare countless studies have found this doesn't work it makes the economy weaker because nobody has money to spend but I think we're about to get on to our first interview for the show. Oh, yeah. I'll just play a quick few announcements. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. Good to have you. Mohammed El Halabi has been held in an Israeli prison for almost six years, with still no verdict on the charges of diverting millions of dollars of World Vision and Australian aid money to terrorism, despite both the Australian government and World Vision finding no evidence of misused funds. For Palestinians, the Israeli justice system means closed courts, secret evidence, torture, and long delays. Join Amnesty, the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, and Free Palestine Melbourne in a vigil to mark Mohammed's birthday and call for his release. The vigil will be held at 2 p.m. on Saturday, the 2nd of April at Federation Square. Stand up for justice for Mohammed El-Halabi and for Palestine. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And um, on the line for our first guest for the program, we are very happy to have Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton and and also a member of Socialist Alliance. And um, one of the reasons we have um, Sue on the program is um, Sue has been... Um, has had a, a bit of a history of being involved in refugee rights activism over the years, kind of observing a lot of the kind of different developments that have happened in the changes in policy that have happened through the years. In fact, yeah, Sue has essentially lived through through that kind of experience. Um, and so, you know, in the context of the agreement that the Morrison government has come to in agreement with the New Zealand government about you know, agreeing to settle uh, a number of refugees um, into in into Australia. Yeah, we have um, Sue on the program to have a bit of a discussion about it. So, yeah, good morning, Sue. Hi, how's it going? Okay, so starting, I guess, off, um, off I, I want to see if you can give us, you know, having been involved in refugee rights activism for a while, I guess I want... I want to kind of hear a bit of a sense, like give us a bit for our listeners, because some of our listeners are not necessarily aware about some of the history of our, of our refugee kind of policy. And I guess what I want to sort of hear a brief sort of history on Australia's refugee policy leading up to the point by which they have accepted this recent New Zealand deal. Well, I guess it uh, depends how far back you want to go. Um but maybe just starting from the New Zealand deal, this um, deal was offered nine years ago, which actually probably coincides with the end of the Labor government, the beginning of the Tony Abbott government at that particular point in time. And 
this deal, if it had been accepted then, would have resettled 1,350 refugees in New Zealand nine years ago, um, or actually probably would have taken a few years because it's uh, only 150 refugees per year. But it's this, you know, where this deal comes from is a result of Australia's offshore detention policy. And this started under the Labor government. Then it was axed when Labor came to power in 2007. Then Labor reintroduced it in 2013, or maybe even slightly before with PNG. And then, um, and basically ever since this was reintroduced by Labor and continued by the Liberals, there's a common position of the two major parties that no asylum seeker who arrived in Australia by boat after 2013 will ever be resettled in Australia. And you notice when when, um, Morrison accepted the New Zealand deal, he reaffirmed this, that no, no asylum seeker who comes here by boat will ever be resettled in Australia. And that's why the Labor Party, when it tries to differentiate itself about its refugee policy from the coalition, that's why they're prepared to take up the issue of the Tamil refugee family, but they're not, they've never been prepared to take up the issue of the Medivac refugees because their position is identical to the coalition around... Um, refugees who've come from offshore detention. Mm. Um, so, in terms of the actual, uh, this actual change in policy, you know, the Morrison government actually agreeing to this deal, can you give us a little bit of a, a rundown, some comments on, um, like, the deal itself and basically why does it not go far enough? Well, it doesn't go far enough because there are hundreds of refugees who are not covered by this deal. Now, I'm not sure if all of the different groups are not covered, but certainly the refugees were stuck in Papua New Guinea as a result of the, um, you know, as a result of Australia's offshore detention um, system um, are not covered by this deal at all. And those refugees in PNG are only in PNG because of Australia. Um, the It will take several years for all of the Medivac refugees who are in detention to be um, resettled in New Zealand. So it'll take around three years before they're all out of detention. Um, I'm not entirely clear yet if people on bridging visas living in the community will be covered by this deal. But... um, but there are definitely hundreds of refugees on Nauru and PNG, especially PNG, who are not covered by this deal. I think I gather it's something like 500 according to Amnesty International, and it will take several years for this to, um, you know, for the refugees who are going to be resettled in New Zealand to be resettled because it's only 150 a year, not all at once. And then New Zealand itself will reduce its the number of refugees it takes from refugee camps by 150 a year. So it will um, 
that will come off its refugee quota, which I also think is outrageous and is very similar to the Howard government where they deducted the number of uh, people who came here by boat that they granted refugee status to. They um, used that number to reduce the number of people they took from refugee from the UN refugee program. So it was always, and that was clearly about sowing um, disputes between different different refugee communities, um, because yeah, I mean it was like such a nasty, nasty policy, and yeah, so that's what's going to happen with this policy. But it's also like this is Australia's policy. These refugees came to Australia. This is Australia's responsibility. It's not New Zealand's. It's the equivalent of human trafficking that Australia is, you know, shopping refugees who come to Australia, who arrived in, on Australia's shores around the world to third countries like New Zealand, US, Canada, etc. Um, it's good that the refugees are finally, you know, some of the refugees are finally going to be resettled. But it also means that these refugees the ones who have started to establish links with people in Australia, either you know, who might have been visiting them regularly, um, where maybe they've got lawyers here, et cetera, et cetera. They've got some links in Australia and they're wrenched away from those links and sent off to New Zealand where they have to try and re-establish connections and friends and contacts in that society again. So it's sort of not great for refugees. I mean, obviously, if people, you know, want to go to another country voluntarily, that's um, that's fine. But for the government to simply dictate, you'll go here, you'll go there, um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's it really, while I'm happy that, and it is a victory, that this, the Australian government has um, responded to pressure, because it wouldn't have, you know, responded if it wasn't for public pressure and allowing these refugees to go to New Zealand. On the other hand, it's the government totally shirking its responsibility of mm. accepting refugees. Mm. And I guess that gets into... Um, I was going to potentially ask you a question about the policy difference between the major parties, but I guess I want to go into another kind of question um, that I think is a bit more important in relation to some of the points that you kind of bring up, and that is this kind of question of refugee... Are refugees still trying to reach Australia? Because in response to... Yeah, because the, the kind of Morrison sort of government kind of propaganda has almost sort of tried to say, almost like imply that... Um, you know, there's no boats coming. Um, we've successfully kind of stopped the boats, etc. And also, I guess I want to kind of hear in in answering this question. You know, I want I think you know what, um, an explanation. I guess why this kind of because the implication around refugees trying to reach Australia and stopping the boats basically implies boat turnbacks, i.e. turning back um, refugees uh, to, um, who are seeking asylum to go back to their home countries where that, that they um, that there were escaping prosecution to begin with? Well, who knows if their boat's still coming to Australia because the government has basically made it illegal to talk about it. And we do know every so often it does get revealed about a boatload of refugees trying to reach Australia. Um, 
And, you know, the patterns of refugees uh, movement across the world really do relate to which country is in crisis at a particular time um, because you'll suddenly see a massive increase of people coming from a particular country when you look at refugee movements. So the actual, so it shows you that the whole question of refugees is totally to do with where there's war and conflict and tyranny at a particular point in time. And so the government has shrouded this in secrecy so they don't tell anybody what's happening. Now, on the rare occasion where there is a report that's revealed, the Australian government, the customs boats, have done really dangerous things because they've turned boats around in international waters before they get to Australian to Australian waters. And in addition to that, this years ago, under the Howard government and the Labor, when Labor was in power, they never changed this. They excised in a huge number of islands from Australia's migration zone so that if um, you know, a boatload of refugees arrived on Cocos Island or Christmas Island, they, it was considered not landing on Australia and therefore not Australia not being obliged to provide protection <laughs> to those refugees. And the boat turnbacks is not a nice thing to do because if people are in boats which are in bad shape, don't have enough fuel, etc., then, you know, people, if those boats are turned back to go back to Indonesia or somewhere else, then often they're in really bad shape and it can be really dangerous. It can lead to people drowning. And the whole um, furor about people coming to Australia by boat and drowning at sea, like a lot of those drownings were totally preventable because there's a lot of evidence now that uh, Australia stopped abiding by the law of the sea, which is you rescue vessels in distress. And mm. so Australia, Australian government, customs, etc., refused to rescue um, asylum seeker boats when they made distress calls and tried to explain away people calling in distress as just being chatter. So it's, mm. it's Australia's responsible for a lot of those deaths. Yeah, and we've seen reports of that out of the Mediterranean Sea as well with like Greece and Italy turning back boats from the Middle East and that sort of thing. It's as you know, as horrifying it is as it is, it's well horrifyingly common for various countries to do these sorts of things. But uh I guess circling back to the the question we uh skipped over briefly, what's what's the difference between the, you know, the coalition and Labor's policies on these things? Like, does, is Labor promising to stop drowning people at sea or anything like that? Well, there is one difference, which in talking to some refugees who are in Australia on temporary visas, um, so these aren't necessarily the people who arrived after 2013 and got sent into offshore detention, but they've been on temporary protection visas from many years and therefore haven't been able to see their family, including children children who might have been small children when they left their country. Um, uh, 
And that is that the Labor Party has pledged to get rid of temporary protection visas. And I suspect they will actually do that um, because they actually did that when they were last in government and then temporary protection visas were brought back by Abbott. Um, so it depends on which category of refugee you are. If you're a medevac refugee or, you know, have been caught up in offshore detention, then, you know, after 2013, then the, there's no difference between Liberal and Labor. Um, if you're on a temporary protection visa or another version of temporary protection visa, which is called the Chev visa, then actually life would get easier, but providing they do what they promise, which is mm. getting rid of temporary protection visas and shared visas and granting permanent residencies, because that would basically allow, allow people not only to have all the rights of other people, um, other Australians, but it would allow them to have family reunion, to visit family overseas, to have family visit here to to have family be reunited. And that's not a small thing, mm. so that is a good thing um, and it is a, a tangible benefit if Labor got elected over the Liberals. Yeah. But, the, but the thing that is so worrying is the fact that, you know, Labor... I mean, Labor is committed to saying that Asylum seekers um, should be processed offshore. Um, the Liberal Party agree with this as well. Mm. So what the Australian government is proposing is that... Um, so the Labor Party is proposing that if they're in government, they'd assist the situation by helping fund um, processing centres in Indonesia and so forth. Now, I mean, that can sound good in theory... But those refugees have to go somewhere. And Australia currently accepts hardly any refugees from Indonesia. At one stage during the Howard era, Australia was only accepting 12 refugees a year from Indonesia. Mm. And so, of course, the number of refugees built up in Indonesia because people had, and people had nowhere to go. That's why people came to Australia by boat. No one was resettling them. There was, um, they're not, they don't have any rights in Indonesia. And so it's sort of, it's a, so the idea of the ALP um, and the libs of just processing people offshore and the Australian government assisting with that process just means that they're saying refugees are not allowed to come to Australia, which means Australia is effectively tearing up the refugee convention. Mm. Um, that's what they're doing because most most refugees never get to refugee camps and Australia's picked on people who've come here by boat because the only, the only reason for their anti-refugee policies is because the Liberal Party in particular all the way back in 2009 was facing electoral loss mm. and they knew that Pauline Hanson had tapped into a racist strand in the Australian population and they wanted to win an election. And ever since then, the policies got crueler and crueler and crueler and the Labor Party has rarely ever opposed any parts of the policy.
Hmm. And um, I want to kind of con- have a I guess, a bit of a concluding kind of question, um, but I guess the kind of first part of this concluding question is, you know, this important topic of the question, I guess, of family reunion, because right now, I guess, in the current context, family union is virtually kind of impossible for refugees. In fact, one of the actual, one of the other, you know, one of the other problems of the New Zealand deal in a way is, I mean, hypothetically, I mean, let's say that uh, a refugee who has been, who's been granted um, status um, in New Zealand, um, gets to move to kind of New Zealand, but has family back in Australia under, I guess, these sort of arrangements, it would be virtually impossible for that refugee to be uh, to be reunited or even see whatever family or relatives they might have in that context. So, yeah, I want to kind of hear your kind of explanation on, yeah, why is family reunion uh, impossible for refugees and why, yeah, basically the importance of why we have to fight for it. <clears throat> Well, I think family, this is why some refugees will, um, you know, will definitely benefit if Labor got elected because of the abolition of temporary protection visas. But my understanding is that the only reason the Morrison government accepted the New Zealand deal is because they're not going to stop refugees coming back to Australia eventually at some point in the future. Now, I don't know what other barriers might be constructed to try and stop that. Um, and that was the reason why the, the, how, the um, Morrison and Abbott governments refused um, to allow the New Zealand deal all those years ago because they said, oh, we don't want refugees coming back to Australia and because New Zealanders have a right to come to Australia without really going through a visa process, then um, they were not going to allow, you know, refugees to go to New Zealand and then come back to Australia. Um, so it would be... My understanding is it is possible for those refugees to come back to Australia. But the thing is, if they come back to Australia in that way, um, New Zealand residents, unless they become uh, permanent residents, they can live here for many, many years and not have any access to any benefits in Australia despite having despite paying tax through work, etc. Um, so, um, you know, there are refugees I, I know personally in Faulkner in Melbourne who've, um, yeah, lived in New Zealand and then eventually come to Australia like a lot of New Zealanders do um, to seek better employment, etc. But then end up in a, you know, might end up sick or something and they're not eligible for Medicare or anything, even if they've worked and paid tax, et cetera. So that's my understanding. But the family reunion issue is absolutely critical to refugees because, um, well, anybody can imagine it. If you're ripped away from your family and which really asylum seekers are, they're ripped away and their family and loved ones. And, you know, in some cases, I mean, I've heard the stories where people, refugees had left their family when maybe their children might have been one year old or two years old, and they try and maintain connection with their family but uh, and with their kids, etc. But the kids at one or two have no memory, really, of a parent. And so then 
their family, maybe a mother, might be trying to encourage the kids to do FaceTime with their father who might be stuck in Australia on a temporary visa or, you know, in offshore detention or something, and the child doesn't recognise that parent and doesn't want to engage in FaceTime. Like, this is just so horrendous. And some refugees have had numerous members of their family um, die while they're stuck in detention or in temporary protection visas, including really close members of their family, you know, parents or partners or children or uncles or whatever. Um, uh, And maybe they might have family members who are also being harassed by military or gangs or whatever and they're not able to assist in any way because they're stuck here on temporary visas or in detention. Um, Like, this is eight, ten years. Sometimes uh, marriages are broken up because the partner who's been left behind wants to move on with their life. They can't see a future. Um, This is probably one of the most heartbreaking issues for refugees um, is not having contact with their family. Um, It's just like this is the most heartbreaking thing. I mean, and anyone could put themselves in their shoes of thinking what would it be like if you were just wrenched away from everyone you love and are close to or responsible for and not allowed to see them for eight, nine, ten years or more in some cases. Right. Well, thank you very much um, for... Um, for being part of this discussion, Sue. Um, I think, yeah, this has been very informative and I think very mm. kind of important. And I guess just while we're talking, I guess, about refugee rights, I just want to make a bit of a plug that uh, the annual Palm Sunday Justice um, Walk for Justice for Refugees rally is going to be happening on Sunday on the 10th of April. And, yeah, and then basically, yeah, it's going to be happening the 10th of April at 2pm at the State Library. And I think we re- recommend that, you know, all refugee rights activists and people who support refugees uh, get along to that protest because I think there is, you know, while the New Zealand deal was obviously a welcome development, then we need to be doing far more. Uh, we need to be keep the pressure on the government to actually abolish its entire um, refugee kind of policy. So thank you very Can much. Can I just Sue. add one, one extra point? Yep. Is Australia needs to deal with the issue of the massive number of refugees who are stuck in Indonesia can't go back, like many of them are from Afghanistan um, or Iran and other countries or Rohingya, um, can't go back to their home countries because genocide or all sorts of different things and can't go forward and have zero rights in Indonesia. And Australia, in addition to Australia accepting... Australia needs to accept refugees from Indonesia and help resolve that problem because um, Australia has to accept refugees. Otherwise, you know, the UN Refugee Convention is meaningless. And so we have to... I mean, it's not like Australia's accepting, has accepted that many refugees in the past. They should be massively increasing their refugee intake. And they need to, you know... And they they don't have to... uh, um, have people coming by boats, they could simply airlift refugees and bring them straight to Australia. And they don't have to put people in detention, but they could have centres where people could live while they get on their feet, which is what the old migration 
um, migrant hostels were, which was where people could live, they could come and go. They weren't weren't detention centres, they were just places where people can live while they get on their feet. But Australia needs to accept refugees. They can't do what they're doing or in social science we're opposed to what they're what the major parties are doing is saying that they won't accept refugees other than ones through the UN program by air. Mm. So, yeah, that's one of the things that I think we need to push for, yeah. well, as well as permanent, permanent refugee status, not temporary visas. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Sue. And, um, yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. We're just having a discussion with Sue Bolton about... Uh, the history of the refugee policy and also refugee kind of rights today in the context of the New Zealand deal. All right, I'm going to play, I'll play a song, um, Summer of My Life by Archie Roach. You're listening to Green Left Radio, Free CR, 855 AM. And thank you very much, Sue, for being on our program. See ya. Thank you. Bye. Every day This little lady With hair of grey And she just smiles And shuffles On her way Through these hospital Corridors She walks along these lonely floors to a bed where an old man used to lay and no man used to say I'm in the summer of my life I've seen the good times I've seen the strife I've just been under the surgeon's knife But please don't cry, my darling wife He came here a year ago And the doctors didn't know If the time for him to go was near But when he came and he went to sleep She prayed the Lord his soul to keep And as she closed her eyes to weep It seemed that she could hear Of my life I've seen the good times I've seen the strife I've just been under The surgeon's knife But please don't cry My darling wife She'll sit there 
for many hours and repeat her marriage vows in places there the sweetest flowers in bloom She sits by that empty bed Her weary eyes are wet and red But the words that he once said Still echo through that room I'm in the summer of my life I've seen the good times, I've seen the strife I've just been under the surgeon's knife But please don't cry, my darling wife Cause you and I, we've had some fun And our love has touched everyone And in the light of the moon Son, you and I have been as one. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to Summer of My Life by Archie Roach. Now, I was thinking, because we mentioned it, I guess, at the start of our program, um, we want to have a bit of a go, I guess, me and Ari were going to have, I guess, a bit of discussion on our, I guess, response to the federal budget. And for this discussion, I was going to draw on the, um, the coverage that we've done in Green Left. Um, there was just a recently an article written by, Fed, um, by Peter Boyle, which is titled Federal Budget, Nine Billion Election Bribe Fails to Address the Inequality and Climate Emergency. So there's a few, there's a few kind of things about, um, to kind of say about the budget. And that is, We've been talking about this. Um, one of the contexts um, that kind of informs this budget is the fact that currently Australia is very much going through a cost of living crisis. Hmm. We've spoken about this a number of times in the program, but what we're finding is that, you know, the prices of fuel, basic goods, housing, all, all the kind of necessities that you need for life, all that is steadily increasing. And our wages um, are not keeping up with it. Um, so yeah. that's one of the kind of big kind of issues. And one of the one of the kind of announcements um, that was kind of like, and in fact, this refers to the to the discussion about about um, about Peter Boyle when Peter Boyle refers to it as a nine billion dollar election bribe. Some of the measures that the government is um, promising, and in fact, these were the measures that they leaked to the media ahead of time. Mm. Which was, um, there's, there's gonna be, uh, there's gonna be a four, the, this nine billion dollar cost of living package is going to include a $420 additional tax offset for low and middle income owners, uh, a one-off $250 payment to pensioners, welfare recipients, veterans and concession cards, 
holders and halving off of the petrol and diesel excise and an equivalent custom duty for six months. Now, Peter's sort of take on this, and I think I would agree with this analysis, that this is kind of like an example of Scott Morrison counting on a pre-election cash splash to buy the coalition enough votes to win the upcoming federal election. But the problem with these measures is they don't, they're not actually going to make very much of a dent in the rising cost of living pressure being faced by most households. Mm. This is because wages are actually continuing to fall in real terms and pensions remain close to the poverty line, while unemployment um, payments are even lower. Yeah, and like if I get $250, that's maybe a week worth of food. And like I don't, I, you know, live with two other people. Like this, it's, I think the other thing is in terms of the idea of this is a bribe is that it underestimates what the actual cost of living is. Because this sort of, you know, one-off cash payment is, is gonna last most people two weeks, really. And like it's, I don't, like you said, Jacob, it doesn't address the actual issue, which is the real fall of, you know, the, the real lowering of wages and the lowering of welfare payments as well in that real sense in terms of them not ke- keeping up with cost of living. Because if none of these payments go up, wages don't go up, but prices continue to surge, then we're all getting poorer. Our money goes le- doesn't go as far. You know, we're earning less. And this tiny amount of money that they're saying that they'll give us all, while it is positioned as a bribe, for one, I don't think it's going to have any kind of – it's not going to have any real impact on the what the coalition has done to its own reputation over – well, I mean, the whole time it's existed. But, mm. like, the especially the, the last couple of months, and, like, with the floods and stuff, as um, Peter Boyle noted, noted um, that, like, while Frydenberg was giving his speech about the budget, people are still being evacuated from around uh, New South Wales because of the flooding. And, like – Somebody who's just lost their home or just been forced to evacuate, you know, $420 or 250 if they're unemployed already is not going to mean shit. Mm. <laughs> Pardon the language. Yeah. And I guess there's a few other kind of aspects because um, the... The, Mor- um, the Morrison government has kind of responded to, you know, they are responding to some of the sort of things we're kind of saying here. So let's just say um, the spin that – let's just respond to some of the spin that they're kind of putting forward mm. on this budget. But one of the thing, one of the levels of spin that they're putting forward is Frydenberg – um, this 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 budget is actually accompanied by quite you know quite a lot of um significant quite a number of significant kind of tax cuts along with kind of corporate kind of handouts yeah and very much what um what Friedelberg is kind of trying to claim is that he's and this is kind of in contrast to the the perspective I actually put forward earlier in the start of the program, <laughs> which is he's basically claiming that the billions in tax cuts and deduction along with corporate handouts have delivered one of the world's fastest and strongest economic rebounds from the COVID-19 pandemic and led to the Australia's um, lowest unemployment rate since um, 1974. <laughs> and I think that's like, it's almost mm. like ignoring like, why Australia was successful in 2020. Like, you know, in yeah. fact, actual fact, you know, it was an actual thing when we were living through uh, 2020 to 2021. Mm. The fact that Australia 
actively suppress the virus, the fact that they actively implemented things like JobKeeper and job and a job seek increase, those were actually the things that probably actually contributed yeah. more meaningfully to the economic recovery that Australia has. Because when you look at other parts of the world um, who suffered massive impacts from um, um, from the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, failed to suppress the virus, etc., you know, allowed mm. you know the healthcare system to be overloaded, um, you know, they did not make the same level of economic kind of recovery. And then yeah, I guess. And- Oh, yeah. I just wanted to, and I wanted to bring up that, like, what's worth mentioning is, uh, I don't know who watched the, um, Anthony Albanese's, uh, budget response last night on ABC, but one of the things that he was talking about in the interview afterward, uh, when somebody, when, uh, Lee brought up the, this whole thing, like the, what we're talking about of JobKeeper and the increases of JobSeeker and disability and all of these welfare payments, one of the things that he brought up and is necessary to bring up is that, a lot of the reason that happened is because the other parties fought the coalition on it as much as they did. Because the coalition, of course, didn't want to do any of that, really. And we saw that as they continued to be either really hesitant or just refused to reintroduce mm-hmm. these but these um, rate increases and JobKeeper when, you know, especially in Victoria, but around the country, we people needed to go back into lockdowns. And so it is very worth mentioning that, like, that that's not something that the coalition wanted to do, and it's led to this, like, comparatively pretty good economic recovery. Hmm. And I guess one of the other things is um, Josh Frydenberg is also, in terms of the budget and this whole issue of wage stagnation, hmm. the, the, the general kind of spin response that's coming from the coalition government is they're trying to kind of uh, claim, and this is um, what Peter Boyle kind of writes here, in... You know, there was an ABC 7:30 interview after his um, after Frydenberg's budget speech, and essentially what Frydenberg said is on this whole issue of way of wages. Um, Frydenberg argued that you know, as more people get into work, we'll essentially see upward pressure on on wages. <laughs> but this is contradictory because as um, the Australian Institute Centre for Work senior economist Alison Pennington wrote in the New Daily. This is not actually what even the budget papers forecast, yeah. because the budget papers, the ones that Josh Frydenberg was responsible for writing, I mean, I'm not sure if he actually wrote the whole thing, but, you know, yes. that's, that's besides the point. The budget forecasts wage growth of 2% in 2021 to 2022, which is actually below inflation, which is actually forecast to grow yeah. by 4.25%. So essentially what you're actually getting, that's a wage cut of 1.5%. Like, no, there's not, there's no, yeah. there's no, projection that wages are going to kind of automatically increase and also yeah, actually and fundamentally misunderstands yeah. wages anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's the, that's why what I was bringing up at the start of the show as well is that, like, these ideas of austerity and trickle-down economics, all of the people who... I, not all of them, obviously, but these big organizations like the World Bank and even the IMF will talk about, like, they'll impose these sorts of things on countries like they did in Greece uh, after the, you know, global financial crisis, but... They have also said that none of it works. Like this idea of trickle-down economics, which is what Josh Frydenberg's talking about when he says that the more people in 
um, work, the wages will get pushed up. Like the more, the idea being the more money that companies have, the more they can pay workers, the more workers they hire. But what we see instead is this ridiculous exponential growth in the difference between top executive pay levels and, you know, the average or the, the bottom level workers pay levels where we've gone from in, I think the last 40 or 50 years, we've gone from something like 21 to one to something like 3,700 to one. Like you have this ridiculous exponential growth in executive pay levels and everybody else's wages stagnate, which, as you just said, Jacob, effectively means that everybody's wages go down as the cost of living goes up. Because even if you earn the same amount of money, it's like um, I saw a thing and this is in the U.S., of course, but I saw somebody mention uh, in the U.S. that their uh, like. I think it was their grandfather or like an elderly parent had said, oh, you know, I worked for $7 an hour when I was a kid, right? So I worked for $7 an hour 50 years ago. And a quick Google result, a quick Google indicates that's about $20 an hour now, which is still very low. <laughs> but <laughs> but if you as a worker in the US, your minimum wage is $7.50, that's, that's like what, 13 odd dollars that your wage has effectively gone down in that time, right? Just as this kind of simple illustration of what the point is. Even though the amount of money is technically the same, it doesn't go as far. And this federal budget is another example of that continuing to be the case. Hmm. Because as we see this uh, inflation crisis, the, the fuel levels going up, sorry, the fuel prices going up, one of the things that we're also seeing around the world is company profits skyrocketing, <laughs> is all these windfall profits that... Uh, you know, coincide with the the prices of food and fuel and all of these things going up. Hmm. Yeah, and those are all kind of very important points. And I guess going um going away from the kind of cost of living kind of debate around this kind of budget, going to the more the question of the overall kind of picture of the budget. Hmm. You know, very much I would probably argue that this federal budget is you know exactly like, you know, despite the kind of cash kind of bonuses and the tax um, offsets that they're offering to sort of lower income people, this budget very much is more of the same as what the the coalition government has um, been doing. And it basically, it's basically a continued trend of putting big business profits ahead of social and environmental needs. And you know, the the budget, you know, projects actually reduce spending on climate change over the next few years. And I thought the coalition was actually supposed to adopt a reasonable climate policy, apparently. Well, that uh, is their reasonable climate policy. Um, and, you know, a lot of this climate re- responsibility is abrogated by the fact, Peter Boyle writes here, that it's largely due to high prices for Australia's iron ore, fossil fuel and wheat exports. The mm. government is forecast to receive an extra $126 billion in revenue between 2021 to 2022 and 2025 to 26. And then the other aspect, the final kind of aspect to comment is, you know, to add salt into the wound, the Morrison government, you know, is, is announcing that it's going to continue to raise military spending with 38 billion going to increase the number of defense um, forces personnel by 18,500 by 2040 and 9.9 billion for cyber warfare compatibilities in addition to the um, 270 billion already committed to military equipment purchases. You know, as always, yeah. plenty of money for corporate welfare and war, but peanuts for social justice and the environment. Yeah, and I wanted to just really quickly mention uh, just a fun fact for, from a, an article we didn't end up covering, which is uh, Peter Boyle's, another article from Peter Boyle about war propaganda 
and this comes this is what we're just talking about here with increased military spending spending is uh possibly the the older among our audience might end up recognizing this uh propaganda campaign with the slogan in our own backyard you know that's talking about all the stuff that we made in our own backyard so people some older people might remember the owens gun which was a submachine gun supposedly developed by a teenager in his backyard before world war ii uh, which became this big propaganda campaign about, look how willing we are to go to war. And we're just, we're going to bring that back. And most people who probably remember that, um, don't remember it fondly. But well, anyway. we're going to set up <laughs> nuclear shelters, etc. Um, yeah. Um, and, <laughs> oh. Anyway, um, we'll conclude, I guess, this discussion on, on the federal kind of budget. And, um, we've got to go, the next part of the program, we'll go into the Green Left kind of, ac- the Green Left activist calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Thanks for being here. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. There is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And now it's time for our Green Left activist calendar, um, to give report, um, to give, um, to let, um, our listeners know about some upcoming political events that are coming up in Melbourne. So some of the events I want to sort of highlight, um, there is going to be an expedition, um, Ibi Ibrahim, um, Black Lives Matter at the Footscray, um, community, um, Community um, Arts Centre in Moreland uh, in Moreland on Moreland um, 45 Moreland Street in Footscray, and then on Wednesday March the 30th to um, Sunday Ma- uh, April the 24th, there's going to be a comedy night, Wage Against the Machine, um, which is going to be I imagine is some going to be some quite political com- comedy, and then on no that's already happened actually sorry. And then on Saturday, April the 2nd, um, there's going to be a vigil, Mark Mohammed, El Halabi's birthday at 2pm at the Federation Square. There's going to be on Sunday, on April the 3rd, there's going to be um, a webinar um, by, um, by uh, the K- a Kurdish Solidarity Group titled What is Democratic Confederalism? And you can register for the event by looking up that you can look up the details on the Green Left website, but this has been organised by North and North and East Syria Solidarity. Now, on 
Um, Wednesday, April the 6th, 6th, there's going to be a webinar, Fair Go for Refugees, Australia Can Do Better. And that's um, going to, I think that is being organised by Amnesty International. So you can go, if you look on the Amnesty International website, you can get the details kind of there. And then on Friday from um, April um, 8th to Saturday, April 16th, um, prominent Green Left comedian Hell Child is going to be having a a show um, titled Dolly the Blow Up Love Doll. And, well, the problem is I can't, I feel like I can't really say the rest of the title because it's a bit inappropriate. Just so search up Hell Child um, the Blow Up Love Doll and yeah, I'm sure you get the full, um, the kind of full title. Um, and then on Sunday, April the 10th, um, there's going to be a rally, Palm Sunday, Walk for Justice for Refugees at 2 p.m. at the State Library on, in Swanson Street in the city. And then on Wednesday, April the 27th, there's going to be, um, um, there's going to be music, Musicians for Freedom at 7.30 p.m. at the Brunswick Ballroom, 314 Sydney Road in Brunswick. And then on Thursday, April the 28th, it's going to be International Workers Memorial Day at 10.30am at Memorial Rock, corner of Ligon Street and Victoria Street in Carlton. And then just a few announcements for some regional events I just want to bring up. There's going to be an exhibition in Geelong until June 19th, The Personal is Political, at the Geelong Gallery, 55 Little Mallet Street. And on Saturday, April the 2nd, there's going to be a rally, um, No Gas Terminal in Corro Bay at 11am Little Mallop Street in the Mall in Geelong. And and then, yeah, and then Ballarat, there's going to be the International Memorial Workers Day at 12 noon Hawkins Avenue at Delacum. Now, that's happening Thursday, April the... Tw- um, so, yeah, that is um, the Green Left kind of activist calendar. Um, we'll, we'll play a quick... Um, we'll play a number of uh, quick announcements um, for... And then we'll move on to our second and final interview for the program. You are listening oh, to... Sorry, just quickly. I feel like we should remind people of this more often. But you can go to greenleft.org.au slash events if you want to get some, some more specific stuff. There's filters for the day, filters for location, and you can give us your email address uh, if you want and postcode to get a newsletter that's um, basically, you know, the same sort of events that we read here on the radio. Hmm. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. Thank I you for much. I feel um, like I should mention that. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Ari. Um, we'll go, as I said, we'll play a quick few announcements and then go on to our, our last interview of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. Mohammed El Halabi has been held in an Israeli prison for almost six years, with still no verdict on the charges of diverting millions of dollars of World Vision and Australian aid money to terrorism, despite both the Australian government and World Vision finding no evidence of misused funds. For Palestinians, the Israeli justice system means closed courts, secret evidence, torture, and long delays. 
Join Amnesty, the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, and Free Palestine Melbourne in a vigil to mark Mohammed's birthday and call for his release. The vigil will be held at 2 p.m. on Saturday, the 2nd of April at Federation Square. Stand up for justice for Mohammed El-Halabi and for Palestine. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And we are very happy to have Hellchild on our program, who is actually going to be a performer for the 2022 Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So Hellchild is a comic impersonator, a poet, and internationally exhibited ritual artist. And then she is back with uh, you know, another show at the Melbourne 2022 um, International Film Festival, featuring two outrageously funny characters that somehow don't seem out of place in Australia today. So good morning. Hel- Helen. Hi, Jacob. All right. Um, so the first question I just want to kind of ask is, can you, uh, can you I guess, tell us a bit about um, about your show? And I guess maybe kind of um, for, for our listeners, um, which will be kind of of interest, can you talk, tell us about, you know, some of the politics and and some of the issues you've res- you're responding to um, with your show? So, yeah, go go away. Okay. Well, um, in the show, uh, as with last year, um, I'm playing a blow-up sex doll uh, who is running away to win her freedom and liberate all sex toys from bondage. Um, so she's a, she's a sex toy liberationist and um, she's leading a movement uh, because really, you know, she is one of the ultimate slaves um, and her boss is a billionaire, a mining billionaire called uh, Clive Parmigiana. And uh, Clive wants her back. You know, he, he can't live without her. Um, and he'll do anything to get her. So she's going to avoid Clive while she's doing her show because he's going to gatecrash the show. So um, that gives you an idea about the politics. Um, he also likes, you know, like to give his tips on being a billionaire and uh, a few other insights. Um, and so, as well as that, Dolly is also fighting to save the world from all the billionaires and the way they're wasting money on um, sending giant dicks into outer space. And these dicks are very dangerous, you know. There's dicks of all kinds. So, um, so. Yeah, Dolly's basically a saviour for our modern age. Yeah, and um, I guess I'm going into kind of um, kind of next question. I mean, I want to kind of hear from you because you're you are um, with with this show. You're obviously going to be in character, and you're going to kind of be impersonating, uh, I guess, a number of these um, and making fun of, I guess, number of kind of political kind of figures in this. And I guess I want to sort of hear your words as a comedian, like you know, the kind of value of political satire, especially in terms of you know the the, the uncertain political times we live in right now. Well. Uh one thing that with political satire that I always always found, because I, I use it a lot when I've done rallies, uh, especially in WA, um, is that a lot of people are very upset, a lot of people are very angry, and but when they see um, a satirical version of the character that they are upset at, 
it actually makes them very happy because they can laugh at that character and it makes that character less frightening. But there's nothing more um, humiliating than being laughed at. So, um, I mean, I've, I've actually stood face-to-face with Colin Barnett as Colin Barnett and it was very humiliating. It, it seemed like he felt pretty humiliated, you know, <laughs> and everybody was laughing. Mm. And because because one of the kind of things about about kind of political satire is that you know you're you are often you know poking um you know you're often poking the joke at you know the kind of rich and and powerful and often the kind of rich and powerful that of in terms of the characters that you're kind of parroting they're often kind of like separated kind of from society you know they're often not used to you know they're often not used to being made accountable to kind of ordinary kind of people uh because often they're so they're they're you often ordinary people have so little kind of access to them and so yeah i guess that kind of um i want to sort of hear you know some of also some of your comments i guess on you know some what are some of the other sort of what are some of the other recent events that have kind of expired some of your some of your comedy Oh look, there's just so many, um, and they're still unfolding as we as we talk. You know, um, I, I suppose yeah, the, the waste of money that uh, and the way that uh, people have profited off all the disasters that have happened in the last few years, um, not to mention the disaster of war, uh, and all these you know billionaires are just getting richer and richer, and they're more richer now with the disasters that are happening than they were before. Uh, so it's real disaster tunity, you know, and <laughs> our whole society is geared around this. So I guess, um, yeah, and, and to me, a lot of the characters I portray, whether they're political or not, in some cases they're not. Like I've got a pirate character who's, and, uh, and they're all basically, they're sociopaths. They, they cannot see that what they're doing is, uh, well, basically psychopaths. They, they can't see that there's anything wrong with the way this, with their selfishness, you know. <laughs> so, and I love exploring that because um, there can be a lot of depth to it and twists. <laughs> well, um. I guess the the kind of most kind of important question you've kind of given a kind of good kind of background to your show and. I guess probably the most important sort of question, especially for our listeners, is can you tell us about when you are performing and, I guess, details of, you know, the venue yep. and, and everything? All right. Well, it's, for a start, it's for the Melbourne Comedy Festival, uh, not Film Festival. It, it, I think you said Film Festival before. So oh, yeah, might have made a mistake. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, so the Melbourne Com- International Comedy Festival. Uh, it's called Dolly the Blow-Up Love Doll and the Dicks of Doom. And uh, it's starring me, Hell Child, which is Hell Single L, C-H-I-L-D. Um, and I guess there's going to be lots of stand-up belly laughs, uh, at least one tasteless country song, and lots of embarrassing surprises. And uh, it's on from 6.45 to 7.30 for three nights. Um, the 8th, the 10th, and the 16th. Uh, that's that's Friday, April 8th, Sunday, April 10th, and Saturday, April 16th at Club Voltaire, which is in North Melbourne um, on Raglan Street, it's, which is like almost like an alleyway, really, more than a street, but it's, uh, it, it's a street. And uh, it's a really cool little old theatre. 
and you go upstairs into it. And um, so, it, unfortunately, there's no wheelchair access. But uh, if you like climbing stairs, it's, it's not a problem. Um, and it, it's a very cool little theatre. It uh, supports a lot of independent artists. Hmm. So I, I'm going with that one. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think that's all you need to know. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, um, thank you very much, Hel- Helen and or Helschild. And I guess I want to see, um, we're running a bit out of time now, but I guess we uh, I'll give you a kind of opportunity for any kind of final comments that you might like to make about your show. And I guess maybe maybe see it as an opportunity to kind of like, you know, g- encourage our listeners to attend your show, like give it a bit of a sell, although you've already sold it quite well already in in terms of how you answered the guests the, the first few questions in the interview. Oh, yeah, well, well look, um, Dolly's very excited to be heading her new show. Um, in fact, she's all pumped up and she's ready for action. Um, and and, uh, and oh, I think Clive wants to say a couple of words. Hang on. Oh, g'day, mate. G'day, Jacob. Uh, look... <laughs> I've lost the love of my life, you know? Uh, so uh, uh, money can't buy that, even though I did buy Dolly from an adult store, you know? But, uh, you know, I, 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 I would do anything to get it back. You know, I, I, there's nothing I want more except a frack WA. If I could do that, I, I wouldn't need Dolly. I'd become a gas giant, you know? But, but... You're going to have to put up with me at the show. All right, Clive, get off. Here we are. <laughs> well, that was a good um, that was a good preview, I think, of what um, our listeners um, might uh, will um, have um, will um, will get to experience if they get to attend one of your shows. Um, which I guess, just to repeat, the dates for Hell Child is going to be on April eighth on a Friday night, six forty-five to seven thirty p.m. at the at the Club Rotier. Um, and, and April 10, and then April 16th, or at the same venue, and you can book it tickets as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival booking site. So, yeah, thank you very much, Hellshild. Thank you, Jacob. Cheers. All right, you're just listening to Green Left Radio. Um, we'll inter- and we'll just have an interview with comedian um, Hell Child, who is a comic impersonator, poet, and internationally exhibited visual artist. And she's going to be um, she's going to be performing a, a show titled Dolly the Blow Up Love Doll. Um, so yeah, you can get the details on the Melbourne International Comedy Festival website. So yeah, anyway, um, we'll just play a quick announcement, and then we'll go on to the next part of the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. No, no, the, the other one. Okay. okay. <laughs> You're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and we're getting, I guess, to um, the end of our program. And I thought I would go and draw on 
basically, I mean, this is the kind of discussion that kind of Ari kind of started, yes. but we didn't necessarily go into kind of full detail. But this is another article drawing on the pages of Green Left for this actually coming week's Green Left Fighting Fund column, mm. which is responding to this whole question around war propaganda and how war propaganda that we're seeing today is essentially justifying a bloody arms export dream. And maybe yeah. I could start off. Ari could start off. Yeah, and it's, like I said, it, and I was thinking we might not end up covering it is why I wanted to shove that little fun fact in there. But it's the other thing is, like I said, it is, as the the coalition likes to do, it is appealing to this kind of nostalgic sense of, like, basically is it war dreamy kind of thing like it it's trying to appeal to that um sort of that feeling that we're we're supposed to have as you know masculinists or nationalists or whatever of the the usefulness of war but the aim of the advertising is to sell the government's campaign to sell scott morrison government's campaign and to make australia the 10th biggest arms exporter in the world it's we're currently 20th which is honestly already too high. But, you know, the ad posits that Australians have made stuff for generations in their backyards and that now these skills are needed to supply our growing defence industries. And, like, Australia is one of the countries with the least need for defence industries. We're so isolated in general. But, again, that, that backyard, that making stuff in our backyard thing is a call back to the Owens gun and the propaganda campaign that went around that in World War II and before World War II about some teenager making it in the backyard, even though, like, it was non-functional at the time. But that's not that irrelevant. But even before the 2022 budget was delivered, the government was already promising the biggest expansion of the armed forces since the Vietnam War. And Labour, you know, quote-unquote opposition leader Anthony Albanese in this case, has promised to deliver even more, of course, because this is one of those things that, like the exclusion of refugees, this is one of the things that both sides of the, you know, quote-unquote sides of the government, the coalition and Labour, both think they sell. And so the ad campaigns for this bipartisan war drive might suck in some people, but you're going to be sure it's music to the ears of advertising companies and the arms industry in particular, right? The Defense Department refuses to say how much the campaign is going to cost the public, but investigative reporter Callum Foote found that the agency behind the ad, Universal McCann, received almost half a billion dollars from the government in media, sorry, in government media contracts in 2021, 70 million of which is uh, for, from the Depen- Defense Department. And um, our friend Peter Boyle keeps putting in ka-ching here, but I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, but Yeah, and I guess going into the kind of next kind of comment um, that flows from the article, and um, Peter kind of raises this, which, you know, Australia is not even necessarily in the top 10 arms exporters, but it is already kind of leading the pack in refusing to place restrictions on its arm exports yeah. to 10 10- um, including Saudi Arabia, which has been waging war against Yemen. And, of course, this war remains largely ignored mm. internationally, even though the atrocities actually exceed those in Ukraine. And, of course, that's not to yeah. say that, you know, um, we shouldn't be obviously concerned about Ukraine, but there's clearly uh, a, a level of hypocrisy. You know, the Morrison government was very happy to have 
Ledlensky uh, addressed the federal parliament yesterday. But of course, yeah, they're, but, you know, while they're giving military aid, um, to Ukraine to help, you know, for them to help defend themselves, they happily, you know, give money to the other sort of invaders. Because, you know, yeah. you remember what Morrison kind of said early on in the Russian invasion. He tried to say, Australia will always stand up to bullies. Well, I mean, <laughs> unless we're the bullies. Basically. Unless we're, yeah, exactly. That's, uh, that's, that, that's the kind of irony. Yeah. And I guess the other kind of, um, area, um, the other kind of, um, discussion that's kind of worth having is, you know, one of the, um, one of the kind of things is that Mike, Michelle Fahey, Australian National University based researcher, wrote in Arena that when the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull announced Australia's arm export ambitions in 2018, he was warned by Andrew Feinstein, one of the world's most, um, foremost experts in the arms trades, that Australia would get your hands covered in blood if you want to be one of the Big Ten. Now it has, Fahey wrote. After the launch of um, Australia's um, defence export strategy in 2018, then Minister for Defence Industry Christopher Pine gave a commitment that Australia would only authorise um, military exports to countries like ourselves who support the rules-based international orders. But, as we're going to the kind of point, they've already broken the commitment before he even made it, or to put it more plainly, he lied. And, um, you know... Faye noted that the former Labor MP and international lawyer Melissa Park, who is now one of the United States um, um, nation's groups of experts on Yemen, pointed out that Australia's actions in improving arms exports to countries that are known to be committing serious violations of human rights and its failures to be transparent are inconsistent with its obligations under international law. Now, it's sort think- of, it's one of those things that the government keeps doing, right? Like we were talking about with Sue with the refugee. Uh, the UN refugee agreements and stuff is that we all sign up to these agreements and then we immediately break them, you know, in the interest of nationalism, in the interest of money, in the interest of propaganda, whatever. But this uh, article is for the Green Left Fighting Fund. Um, so we're trying to raise uh, $200,000, uh, which seems like a lot, but, you know, it's in, in, in increments. The more people who sign up, the, the closer we get to it. And you can go to greenleft.org.au slash support to sign up and help uh, you know, support the fighting fund, help support Green Left, help support the work we do with grassroots activism, grassroots uh, journalism, that sort of thing. So, all right. Well, um, we're getting to the end of our program. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Thank all our guests for being part of our program, and stay tuned for. Um, I think um, there's going to be a rerun of Earth Matters following mm. this, and yeah. Um, tune in to us next week where we'll have another great um, program of left-wing news and analysis. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Thanks. FreeCR 855 AM. Thanks for being here. See ya. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt, now thunders and at last since the age of kind. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.